I've got news. I've got really big news. You ready for some really big news? Well, okay, I've been doing radio shows at WKCR for thousands and thousands of years. Some of you may have known me from way back when, maybe got a few newer fans since the podcast, I'm sure. The podcast is the offspring, believe it or not, of COVID. It was the fact that we got the studios shut down on us that inspired me and allowed me the time to create this podcast that you are listening to right now. Last night, okay, it's July of 2022. Last night was the first time since March of 2020 that I set foot in the studios of WKCR. What this means is that we're going to start up doing live shows again. So you can, I don't know if you know this, every one of these podcasts that you've listened to, Deep Focus, was recorded on a Monday night between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. in Morningside Heights in New York City, Columbia University. And that is uh, the origin of the show. It's a, if you don't know WKCR, 89.9 FM, it's a great radio show. Tons of cool things going on there that you should listen to and find out about. You can find it at wkcr.org. And yeah, you can start listening to Deep Focus live Monday night, 6 to 9 p.m. I'm, I, uh, do, I'm on every other Monday. And when I'm not there, there's still some terrific programming going on. So don't be shy. Tune on in. And you can listen anytime you'll hear something that you're not going to hear on any other radio station. But, yeah, starting on Monday, August 8th, 2022, we'll be back in the studio planning a live, a live, 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 deep focus for that night. So let the kids know. Okay, this is part two of a program from 2015, August 17th, a Monday night from 6 to 9 p.m. Melvin Gibbs came by the studio and we got into it on Ornette Coleman. And if you haven't heard part one, I'm going to recommend you listen to part one first. But either way, coming at you right here with part two. It's Deep Focus. I'm your host, Mitch Goldman. For a long period of time without absorbing the thought process behind what makes it work. But that particular combination of sort of human kindness and uh, exploratory thought is... It was rare even for the, you know, even for the 60s and 70s, it was rare. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could even uh, think of Ornette presaging a lot of those things that happened. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people you could point to going, you could see this whole movement kind of came out of this guy's thinking. There are probably other people who you could say that of, but you could definitely say that of Ornette. Yes, for sure. Many different movements, you know, from Carberger talking about he you know, it was basically, Ornette was the one who suggested he go start CMS, and, you know, you know and so. Uh, and that somebody like Carl, who actually, I need to get him back here. <laughs> He's done a couple of these with me. Uh, the last one about Don Cherry that was fantastic, but we really should do one about Ornette, too. And um, the fact that he turned his life 180 degrees mm. after encountering this music. He was like, you know. Uh, yeah, that's the effect. That's the kind of effect that, you know. I mean, 
from like a continent away, back before any of this media stuff existed, he he saw the light. Yeah. He and Ingrid both, yeah. and they just dropped everything, just walked away, and dove in with Don Cherry and then with Ornette. Yeah. And now people, you know. The question is, in this era, what are people going to dedicate? Are people going to dedicate themselves to creativity in that way? Or are they going to dedicate themselves into like know, other ways of, you know, controlling the universe or whatever? You know, so that's kind of for me what gets lost. What got you know the major loss because I don't necessarily feel, you know, the loss of him as a creative force so much because. I don't want to say I got it because I didn't get it. You know, I mean, you know, Shannon didn't get it. You know, Blood didn't get it. I mean, they have their own thing. You are who you are. And I don't want to minimize the loss of him to the culture. But I think there's a certain way of thinking about the world that is really... I wish there was space for it and I I feel that that's of all the other things that I I think about you know his passing that like I said before that combination of the human kindness and the creativity because now creativity is all about you know how much money you can make or how famous you can be or you know how much did your painting sell for or you know what did your IPO go for and there's nothing that's like representing that okay you can be different just because you're different and it doesn't you know yeah, I'm black, but I kind of happen to be black. This is the culture I grew up with, and this culture that you guys kind of half value is, you know, is really incredible, and you just, I'm not going to beat you over the head with it. I'm just going to do this, and you're going to respect it just because it exists. I mean, there's nobody that, I can't see any parallel to that right now. You're listening to WKCR. I'm Mitch Goldman. Melvin Gibbs is our guest tonight, and we're talking about Ornette Coleman and the uh, the unfathomable loss. And the the music endures; it's still with us. Which is, uh, I hope there's some solace for us in that. Yeah, I sure do. We are specifically listening to some recordings from 1978 when uh, the group Prime Time actually came together a few years before this, but I haven't found any recordings of any live performances from the first few years that the band existed, and then a bunch from 1978. And um, maybe you could tell a little bit about what you know about how this band did come together and how they... uh, Because, I mean, I listen to this music, and one of the things I've gotten from it is (laughs) this doesn't just happen. There's uh, a huge amount of work that's been done to arrive at this place. Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, to, to answer that question for real, you should get somebody like Blood or Burner, Charlie, or one of the guys who's actually in the band. I mean, what I know is that, as Donato said, there were always people coming in and out, and he always had, you know, people on the floor, and Blood was living with him for a while. Shannon lived, the guys lived there. And that is part of why the thing had this sort of weird personality that it has because there was that level of empathy of like you're living with somebody and it, you know, the Sunrise Band is the same way. It's got this thing that transcends the idea of rehearsing. It's just this 
substance that lives. And I don't actually, I believe, as you said, Blow was the first one up in there. And there was somebody else before Shannon. I can't remember. I think, if I remember, Burn came in from, Burn was at uh, Berkeley. Believe it or not, Burn is a Berkeley student. Yes, Mr. Burn next. Mm. And he it all makes sense in a whole new way. <laughs> and Vern moved to New York from Toledo, Ohio, and you know he got the intro, and Arnett liked his playing, and got him in the band. And I guess uh, Jamal told me this isn't Jamal. I don't. I, like I said, if I don't really know the the Fred's history. If you're out there, please call in Fred. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll give you the mic. Uh, but I know that. Uh, Ornette was really into having a parallel band to what Miles was doing. So oh, really? That's he, yeah. interesting. I was wondering about that. And he, so he reached out to uh, Reggie Lucas and Ntume. Huh. Ornette and, did. Ornette did. And wow. I can't remember if it was Reggie or Ntume that gave him Jamal's number. That's really interesting. I think it was Reggie that gave him the number. And then I guess Jamal bought the rest of the Philly guys in. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's, uh, I, I don't really know anything about any relationship between the two of them. I mean, it's kind of an obvious comparison in a way of mm-hmm. leading this electric group, but um, I wonder what aspect of all that he was looking for because this doesn't really sound at all like well, Miles I don't think was he doing. was looking to have his band sound like Miles. He was looking for a pool of musicians who understood the language that yeah. were open to the idea of the way he wanted to hear that music. You know, I mean, he would have just hired Miles' band, right? <laughs> you know, if he wanted to do that, he wanted somebody. You know, so that's. He went and got the recommendations of from those guys of who the different guys are, and I guess Jamal was the most different. I guess so that's. By the way, you know, um, another area of overlap here. You know that in eight minutes, Stevie Wonder's doing a free performance in Central Park. No, I did not know that. Now you know. Okay, has this been announced, or is this like an instant? Not really. This is an instant concert. It's an instant concert. That's what I hear. I mean. Where at I, the band show? Where the uh, I guess so. Yeah, oh, that's crazy. I, I heard it today, and I from a source that I believe that uh, uh, that, that just means it's going to be well. I, this is what Twitter is for, you know. Yeah, I'll have to check Twitter afterwards to see after on the break to see what the what the report is because it just seems like that's just going to be a madhouse. <laughs> I mean, even though you know, it's like they didn't let the police know. You know, it's good. No, 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 no. I'm sure that's they. Totally covered that. I think they gave away tickets, right. free tickets, but there it is like a ticketed event. Oh, yeah. But I think that just happened this afternoon. Well, you know, I mean, it's like you're going to hear the concert in the park. You don't have to be, right. you know, it's like you don't. I mean, it would be great to actually be in there and see them up close. But if you just want to hear the music, I mean, we used to do that back in the day. Yes, we did. The, you know. yes, sit up on those rocks. Yeah. Well, there's uh, there's another connection there between Stevie and Miles that we'll talk about another day. Hmm. But uh, these things do overlap. They do overlap. You know, another thing, uh, maybe we should hear some more music and then we can talk about this. I wanted to draw you out about that. This music is utterly distinct, as we've said, in any number of different ways. But one thing um, 
Ronald Shannon Jackson, who's the drummer here with Denardo Coleman. Now, Denardo was a young man at this time, but he'd already been playing with Ornette for 10 years or so. And I didn't really calculate that, but somewhere in there, since he was a kid, um, Shannon was known to people who were really into the music for playing with Cecil Taylor, which was around this time or a bit earlier, with uh, Albert Eiler uh, 10 years before. But uh, he emerges as a voice in this band. All the Sidemen emerge, their voices come to the fore in this band really together. But um, this music would not sound like it sounds without Shannon playing drums. And you know his playing maybe better than anybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, you could you could cogitate on that a little bit. We could play some of this next set or whatever you want to do. Yeah, let's play some more and then we'll, let's then play we'll cogitate. On okay. It. So this this is a thrill. I mean, just unearthing this music and um, finding these astonishing recordings. I can't remember if we said this on the air tonight or not, but... Um, this band really only released two recordings while it was in this early version of the band. And uh, we did say that a little bit, Dancing in Your Head and Body Meta. Um, the last gig that both Shannon and Blood did with Ornette was Saturday Night Live in April of 79. Do you remember that? Did you yes, see that? I remember Milton Berle was the host. and yes, he, was he was. Kind of, he made some really kind of... Uh, you know, borderline uh, offensive joke about the, about the music right before they played. I remember about, that. He made a bunch of like yeah. embarrassing, wildly like, have you ever watched this show? Do you know who your audience is? Yeah. Like totally off base kind of comments, which apparently embarrassed Lauren Michaels to the point that he said, yeah, let's just put that one on the back shelf and hide right. it. But uh, that's another thing that's shown up on YouTube. It is out to the world, although the reruns, it didn't play in, uh, you know, circulate with all the other stuff mm -hmm. from that era. But that was the last gig those guys did with him. And um, so there were other recordings after that. But uh, so we're listening to these live recordings of this group, and uh, it's just uh, utterly distinct. And um, so we are going to hear next from the same band from uh, actually a little bit earlier it was May of that year at the North Sea Jazz Festival and uh, so once again it's Ornette Coleman and the group we came to know as Primetime Burn Nix and James Blood Ulmer on guitars Fred Williams on the bass Ronald Shannon Jackson and Denardo Coleman playing drums and uh, we're off to North Sea WKCR
tot zover even het uh, turbulent optreden van het sextet van Orne Coleman. U hoorde twee stukken, zong ik en Mukari. How, how is your Dutch? Uh, yes, the, and, uh, well, let me, let me step back for a moment, take the big broad view and tell you you're listening to WKCR. I'm Mitch Goldman. We call this show Deep Focus and our subject is Orne Coleman and our guest tonight Melvin Gibbs, and uh, more specifically, we're focusing on this era of 1978, and we've got these magnificent live recordings, and great thanks to Dutch Radio for doing this recording, and Dutch Radio is, exist, yeah. Dutch Radio is the greatest, I'm, you know, I love Dutch Radio, the sound is always amazing on the thing, you know, for some reason, being in Amsterdam always makes everybody really happy. <laughs> yeah, for some reason. You know, so you for, always for get... For one of two reasons. <laughs> you always get... People always do really great shows there. Yes. Yeah. Great audiences, too. Yeah, great audiences. You know, Den Haag, the same thing. You know, Rotterdam, whatever. It's like Holland's just one of the places that... It's a great place to, for music, you know, and... Yeah. You're looking... You got a tour schedule. You're like, ah. Oh, yes, uh, yeah. Oh, day off in Amsterdam? What? what? New Orleans. Yeah. Certain spots that just yeah. have uh, radiate kind of energy, and uh, so this is yeah North Sea Jazz Festival 1978, and um, I was uh, well. One thing we were talking about off mic: how wildly different the feel of was this piece compared to the earlier one that we heard. This at a big festival, the other one in this very proper German kind of castle. And which acoustically had to be a nightmare at that previous yeah, set. I'm, I'm sure they were hating it on stage. But, you know, that's another thing about this that you can impart some wisdom to our audience. And I'm sure it was even more true in 1978 that um, this was uncharted territory for the tech crews at all these places. You know, they're used to, they, they know how to mic and mix rock and roll. They know how to do a classical recording. You come along with this, and it's uh, just uncharted land. Yeah, I mean, you just reminded me of a story that's kind of off topic to that, but I remember the first time I took my band, my own band, to, I was actually the second time I took my own band to Europe. Uh, the show itself was pretty terrible, I have to admit, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's bad when you do your worst show. At I, I was... The two worst shows in my life that I've done on my own. One that was one of them, and the other one was the show that I did where uh, I did. I was doing when I first started doing the band. I was called Liberation Theology, where I had all the Cuban guys and the Cuban religious group and the horn section, and literally nobody showed up. There were like three of us, and it should have been like twelve. And that was the night that David Byrne decided to come. And I was wow. like, oh, life is cruel, you know. Anyway, well, that uh, the gig in Groningen sticks out of my mind, in addition to the fact that it sucks so much, was that I had Jason in the band, DJ Logic, and I requested two turntables and a mixer, and they literally bought two like turntables from somebody's house oh, and a God. mixing board. That's how, <laughs> that's, they, you know, I mean, that would never happen now. They'd have right. Serato, you know, yeah. it's not a, it's not, you know. Yeah, it's not an unknown quantity. People know what it is now, but that's that's what that's that's what that's what it was, and I'm sure it was the same thing for them back with this crazy music, 
you got all of the slow end going on and the European holes not not designed for it. Right, that's a factor too. Yeah. So it's, I'm sure it was a night from the sound man, and it was a nightmare. Having said that, once again, uh, but in the, Holland, the recording's really good. Holland, they got they they know what to do. Holland and Switzerland, man, they got the the sound is always on point in those two places. The sound is always on point. It's funny there are like you could graph the two axes, one being technical proficiency, and the other being. Uh, disposition mm. <laughs> there are places you can go where they'll get the sound right but you're not going to have a lot of fun while they're doing it yeah but uh i would say out of all the places that i ever was on tour netherlands had like both of those needles pinned yeah it's always it's always kind of like it's always a good time it's like you can't go tour go tour tour of that country and not come out feeling like yeah okay i can do this again (laughs) (laughs) some other places you go it's like like, uh, this is a good thing they pay me because i never come here (laughs) but you know netherlands is not like that no 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 and i think uh i I mean i guess every band is subjected to those experiences and you know how was the meal that you had and how much sleep did you get the night before you you really can't tell with these guys quite honestly they're i and i know and this is something else you could talk about. Um, Shannon Jackson, in particular, is playing drums on this. He, it really didn't matter what else was going on. You might get an earful about something or other, but when he was on stage, I think the whole universe disappeared yeah. before the music. Well, that was a 70s thing, too. And I, I mean, I still kind of hold to that aesthetic I mean it's like you're supposed to leave it all on stage you know you go up there you give 100% and that's why you're there I mean the whole kind of like the diva thing it's like that was unacceptable in that era you had to like just go and do it now it's kind of like oh I don't know you know but and there were no small gigs there were no unimportant gigs every gig is important I mean I always tell people the first defunct gig there were maybe like there wasn't maximum 20 people at that gig. And the next gig, there was was 1,000. I mean, it grew that quick. You cannot take any gig as unimportant, you know, because you don't, you know, things can be exponential. And why do it? Yeah. Well, why, if you're not going to bring it, Yeah. I mean, why leave the house? Yeah, I mean, that's 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 the tradition I grew up in. You, if you're going to play, play. If you're not going to play, then don't play. Sit on the porch. Yeah, <laughs> but if you're going to play, play, because that's what, that's what you do, you know, and you do it 100%, you know. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts from the uh, that North Sea performance, recording, any... Uh... I, I just really liked that the, the band interplay was really, really interesting. Like, the way... The guys were playing with each other, and the combination was, it, you know, it was this weird. I mean, it has the everybody's young, everybody's macho thing in it, but it also has this sort of real, like, okay, they're like the Green Berets or something. They're like the <laughs> Delta Force. They like hit the, you know, it's like clear, you know. They they're like checking the exits, you know. Okay, now we're going in, you know. Hand signals. Exactly. It's like eyes cutting. Everything's moving quick and everybody's got everybody else covered. It's just really interesting in that yeah. way. You got and these are some these are some big personalities. Yeah. These there's these are characters. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I something you touched on. I don't know if it's something we can unpack here, but you know, how he selects these guys. And 
how he how Ornette intuited mm-hmm. that this is somebody I can work with and mm-hmm. I can pull something from. Um, but uh, whether they were like this before they started playing with him or they became like this in the process of playing with Ornette, they're they're just they strike me as these like outsized characters and the, the experience I had with these guys individually bears that out yeah, well, each I, in their own way. I think that, you know, it's a thing that you recognize a personality in a person. I mean, you know, the, the thing from that, from our era is the story of, you know, Shannon and, and Vernon and me burn, bringing Vernon to the gig and Shannon literally without hearing a note that Vernon played was like, bring this kid to rehearsal, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you don't want it. And uh, my question was, you don't want him to audition first. He's like, no, just bring him. <laughs> Drama ensued. Yeah, so it's like, it's a thing that you carry around with you. I mean, I remember the thing that I remember from that is doing a gig with Vernon. I remember uh, uh, Nikki, whose name I can't remember. Maybe her last name is Gillespie, the drummer who played with Beyonce. Oh, yeah. Glaspie. 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 I remember we were doing a gig at, at the Tonic when it was open, and she walked in, and I just looked at her. I was like, oh, this is going to be real bad for somebody. <laughs> I was there. The drummers are going to be hating it in a little while. She was playing with Fuse. Yes, she was. And I remember a drummer who I won't name. Yeah. I didn't say, I didn't say, she's unbelievable, that drummer. I just said, hey, what do you think of that set? You know, I was like, well, what, what do you think? And he, he was like, well, she's, you know, he like started like immediately like backpedaling yeah. from his set and like kind of breaking her down a little bit. Totally, totally off his game. Yeah, no, she just walked in. I just walked, she walked in yeah. holding the sticks and I was like, okay, it's a wrap. You know, she just had that thing like you knew. Yeah, and she did and she had it. Yeah. I mean, and still has it, I'm sure. But yeah, she was, uh, yeah, she she lit a fire under yeah. Fuse that night. Yeah. And he's... He's got asbestos pants on most of the time. Exactly. He was like, ah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you know, and Shannon's that kind of guy. Definitely Blood's that kind of guy. You know, you look at it, you know, he carries the thing with him, you know. Yeah. And that's part of it. Carrying it with, and that's also from that era, too, you know, thinking about, you know, having to be, you know, thinking about who you had to be at that time, you know. It's kind of like, our I always think back to the first Black Rock Coalition meeting. The one, the one thing that really bothered me at the time was uh, Greg Tate had come up with this manifesto, and uh, part of the manifesto was we reserve the right to be mediocre. I was like, "What the hell do you mean? Ah, no, that ain't me." But what he actually meant was, you know, it should be, you know, be, you know we should be able to be normal. You know, it's like my kid now. It's like, okay, my kid should be able to be, my kid shouldn't have to be an exemplar to prove a point to everybody. Mm. But those guys from that era, from the era where you didn't have a choice, you had to be an exemplar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. You know, so that's, and you, you hear it in the music, you know. So, I mean, it's interesting now that we're in the Obama era and you don't have to be an exemplar. I mean, to a certain, you know, it's more, you you have more of a right to be mediocre than you did when, you know, back then. You don't have 100% right. It'd be interesting to see, you know, how personalities progress and how music progress and if you still, where the big personalities are going to come from, you know. Mm. 
Boy, that's a great question. You are, take this moment to do a little station ID. You're listening to WKCR. We are WKCR FM New York and WKCR HD1, or perhaps you're listening to WKCR.org, or maybe you're listening to WKCR, some other thing that I don't even know what it is. But uh, the program's called Deep Focus. Melvin Gibbs is our guest, and the subject of our focus is Ornette Coleman, and specifically uh, European performances, 1978, and the early version of the band Primetime. And uh, I put it to you a little earlier to uh, unpack some of the magic that's happening in the percussive end of this group and what Ronald Chen and Jackson was bringing and some maybe some of the experience you had in your years on stage with him. Okay, I'll give you some. But first, for those of you listening in high def, I did a little extra lip smacking. <laughs> you can go back and listen in your, in your right headphone and you can find it afterwards. <laughs> little treasure for you. Yeah, Shannon, I mean, the thing about Shannon was uh, he's from the same town Arnett is from Mm -hmm. Fort Worth and he brings a particular set of rhythms that they grew up on although they didn't meet there no they did not meet there (laughs) but he brings a particular tradition of playing that was you know uh, particular to that part of the world really Mm -hmm. and coming out of the marching band traditions of their town and the different rhythms that the different dance rhythms that they used to play in there and I always found that to be really interesting his rhythms because he would show me some rhythm that would be like and he would say okay this is a rhythm that you know my aunt danced to and you hear some rhythm you're like what the heck (laughs) and he danced to that you know so it's you know I'm sure that's part of the reason that Arnett picked him because a lot of the things that we think are sort of quirky and aesthetically left field about our net are probably things that were the local traditions, you know, things mm-hmm. that people local sort of like, you know, what's the word in semiotics, the local, the, the local musical iconography, mm-hmm. you know, that particular rhythmic figures, particular melodic figures. And, uh, for me, that's always interesting, you know, because Texas is kind of another country. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they, yeah. they do want to be their own country, <laughs> and musically they are. There's so much music coming out of Texas that the rest of us never hear, you know. And uh, what Shannon did with those rhythms and stuff is what's really unique. And, you know, he's been gone you know, a little while now, and there's no, you know, uh, I know one other person uh, that I play with, the drummer David Pleasant, who builds off the traditions of the part of uh, America where my, where my dad came from, who's dug down into the traditional stuff and built out a whole system out of it. But I can't think of any other drummer who's taken the local thing of their community and kind of built it out the way that Shannon did. And then added, you know, the African traditions on top of it. He went and spent time in Cameroon learning from the traditional guys there. We used to talk about rhythmic stuff all the time, you know, you know, uh, you know 
we would exchange records and stuff, you know, because I was a big collector of African traditional music during the time I was in the decoding society. And he built all of that in, and he built in this, uh, what Vernon used to call, what me and Vernon used to call rhythm melodics as opposed to harm melodics. Like how you modulate, how you take a rhythm and modulate it the same way you would uh, modulate a harmony. And it's interesting to go back to uh, the Reggie Lucas and Antume thing, because that's one of the things, that is one of the things that Miles's band did. They had this weird sort of rhythmic, cellular, cellular rhythmic thing that they used to work that was very interesting, that is sort of a parallel to what Shannon does. Uh, so yeah, with, with what you hear with that, and, and that last thing we heard, you hear a lot, there's a lot of that going on where you hear a lot of multiple rhythmic cells, like Shannon is playing a certain cell, Donato's playing a certain cell. Uh, Byrne is responding to that cell, and then Blood will do something that'll be a kind of commentary, and then the bass is kind of weaving through all the four different things that it, um, the the four different guys that are setting that thing up, and then you have Ornette on top of it. So it's it's a really interesting as a theory and as applied the way what Shannon does you know taking those kind of real propulsive marching band-esque rhythms and building it and then how he would take those propulsive rhythms and break them down into something that sounded like you know grandma got hit by the holy ghost or whatever he just really had a really great combination of elements with that is nobody you know you can hear certain you know obviously you can hear max in there you know you can hear other people in there but he had a certain very particular thing that that's also gone now and you know even if you're not getting all that on the level of detail that you just brought to it anybody who listens to the station regularly let's say is going to hear this music that we're playing and they're going to know right away you're in some other territory than conventional swing approach to drumming, which Shannon could do all day long yeah. if he wanted to. If he wanted to play some backbeat blues, he could lay that groove down yeah. tighter than anybody. But um, you're in his concept now, yeah. and the whole band is, and it's moving that way that... Uh, yeah, won't with anybody else. Yeah, one thing I wanted to throw in while I was at it, I mean, you were talking about the strong personalities and who came out of that. I mean, Shannon told me that Ornette was the one who actually encouraged him to pick up the flute and start writing the melodies down and all of that, you know. So Ornette was directly responsible for that. So he was, not only was he a great band leader, he was also like, okay, you can do this. Yeah. Go ahead and do it, you know. Yeah. And again, that's the same thing uh, Shannon did for Vernon. He was like, okay, dude, come on, man when you're going to like do what you know you want to do. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about with the continuums is, you know, even though it's going to tear my band apart. Yeah. <laughs> but it's time for you to do your thing, yeah. you know? And Shannon was already in his mid thirties when he started playing with Ornette. It wasn't yeah. like, you know, he was emerging into himself for the first time. No, it wasn't. And he'd already, I mean, like, you know, he'd already been with Eiler and as Shannon told me, I mean, basically, you know, Train supported that band. I mean, Train used to like, he told me that Train would come pay the band after the shows, you know, if they were playing somewhere. And there was, you know, that's the level of 
and drive them home in his station wagon, wagon and all of that, you yeah. know. So it's kind of like that's that's the level of person. He, and he had played with Mingus, and I mean, he'd already had like a real career that you know most people wouldn't have had. And then, but yet he kind of went back and rebuilt and did this. Okay, I'm going to go stay in his house, and I'm going to learn this whole other way of doing things. And the result was, you know, what it was, you know, to, to have that courage to uh, yeah, to rebuild. Course, yeah. yeah, I mean, great guys do that. I mean, I love the story. I mean, not, you know, it's in a way, it's, it's a shame to keep bringing up Miles in context of Ornette, but I have to think that part of this was what Miles did was inspired by the new things that music that Ornette brought to the music. You know, I mean, he went and got when Ornette started doing what Ornette was doing. Miles basically reconstituted his band and he went and got Herbie and and Wayne and you know Ron Carter and Tony Williams and he brought this whole new rhythm, musical thing in and basically he had to relearn how to play to play with his band because the band had this whole you know the music that the band was playing out of the stuff that Ornette was doing as well as everything else that was happening at the time so what Miles did was he, he basically let them rehearse by themselves for a week then he came in and he learned how to play to them as opposed to like, okay, I got some of your music and you kids are going to play my music. And I think for sure. Sh- they were kids. Yeah. They really were kids. And I think it was the same, you know, it was a, a similar thing with Shannon. Shannon broke down, took what he did and broke it down to go do this thing with Arnett. And, it, you know, it was valuable for both of them. Hmm. I'm taking it all in. (laughs) (laughs) Taking it in. So what you got in your hand? Well, matter of fact, another little prize from the KCR archives. And uh, we were talking about this group playing a variety of venues. And uh, it's really true. We heard them in a German castle. We heard them at a contemporary jazz festival. Now we're going to hear them in kind of a rock club, the Quartier Latin. In Berlin, West oh, I remember Berlin. That. I, remember, uh, I was there once when I didn't go actually, but Prince. I remember when Prince played there. When are you big. thinking of Quartier Latin or the Quasimodo? No, he played Quartier Latin. He did because yeah. I know he also played the Quasimodo, which was right nearby. Yeah, cause, no, because it was Quasimodo is a little place in the basement, right? Is it? Are they actually in the same property? No. They, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. right. But, Quasimodo, yeah. Yeah, that, that's the down. No, yeah. he played in the the bigger. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it still wasn't a huge venue, right? No, it wasn't huge, but Quasimodo was like. Nah, Quasimodo wasn't that tiny. It wasn't. Compared to what? (laughs) No, I remember it being. Compared to Vanguard, it's not, but you know. Um, I don't know, off the top of my head, maybe. Remember, you're talking to a rock and roller now. (laughs) (laughs) Right, small by that standard, yes. (laughs) Off the top of my head, maybe like. Mm, maybe a little smaller than Tonic. Yeah, that sounds about right. But Quartier Atlanta is like a 1,200, I think. It was a, it was oh, a big, okay. Yeah, oh, was, I didn't realize it, yeah. it was that big. It's, it's a pretty, it was a pretty big place. But, uh, well, it's definitely a different vibe mm-hmm. venue. Berlin, how about West Berlin in the 70s? Oh, that was a spot, man. Yeah, we loved, we loved West Berlin. Well, I didn't go in the 70s. First time I went was 81. But, uh, you know, we all, I have affection in my heart for West Berlin. I mean, I like the New Berlin. But it was a lot of fun when it was two countries. <laughs> you want to just uh, shine a little light on that? 
Well, you know, Berlin was like, it was off in its own little universe over there. It was, you had to, you had to go through or over East Germany, like for hours, and you're behind the Iron Curtain until you landed in West Berlin, which was this kind of outpost. Yes. Literally, you're like... You're you're on the other side now. You're way deep in the other side, and they got the fences and the dogs, and you ain't leaving. And I think the fact that you ain't leaving put the people in the permanent party mode. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it had a kind of frontier mentality. Yeah. It was definitely you know don't stop till you drop there. So and I I enjoyed you know I, every time I went there I enjoyed it because of that. I don't you know who knows if I could have survived. If I, <laughs> Not in that, bur- not in that Amsterdam way. It's a different kind of. Uh... Yeah, it's different. But, you know, it's, you know, yeah, but it was, and then in those days, it was a really great music scene. You know. Yeah, another place, another place, always great audiences. Yes, always great. So uh, there we are in Berlin. It's July fourth. Are you glad to be not in America? Nineteen seventy-eight, <laughs> and uh, it's actually listed as uh, Burn Nix and Charlie Ellerby. I think it's still Blood Omer on guitar here. You'll <laughs> confirm for us. And the bassist is listed as Albert Arnold, which is not a familiar name to me. I, I You'll, again, tell us if it's... I have no idea. That might... Uh, th- Albert, if you actually exist and you're out there, <laughs> please call in. That's right. Uh, or it's... Um, our man Fred again, more likely, but... Uh, yeah, but, you know, it's one of those things. It's like... You know, I'm actually going to have to call Jamal after this and find out who actually did that tour, you know. Yeah. Well, it's also, you know, the dates are far enough apart, too. Uh, they could have been different legs. It could have been yeah. somebody's available to do this one and not that one. Um, so, yeah, we don't have full yeah. scholarship on this. But in any case, the core of the band and the sound of the band, you'll recognize. And again, it's Ronald Shannon Jackson and Donardo Coleman on drums. And not to overlook... Donardo's contribution here because, um, you know, I can't help referring to Shannon sitting here with you, Melvin, but uh, Donardo's got his own thing that he brings to this. uh, Yeah, Donardo's doesn't not, I mean, I I love Donardo's playing. You know, I mean, it's kind of like, I don't feel like he gets enough respect as a musician. I agree. I absolutely agree. You know, it's, it's, he does his own thing in his own way and I'm always interested in it you know so whoever doesn't like it y'all can go jump in the lake (laughs) direct (laughs) quote me on that (laughs) and the you know ensuing two decades or whatever it was bears out two decades plus uh, three decades plus bears out uh, you know his contribution and creativity and originality and and time and everything else so, uh, but this particular period, 1978, Shannon's still present on drums. And Shannon's the kind of guy that uh, if he's present, you're going to know. For sure. And uh, so, yeah, let's, uh, we're going to, you know, I tell you, Melvin, this is the last show I do with this engineer. I'm firing this guy. <laughs> hey, that guy, he's, he's terrible. Got... I don't know. It's a union house, though. You're gonna That's have to true. go through. That's true. Gonna have to follow the protocol. Like yes, everyone. yes. I gotta write a letter about this. <clears throat> All right. So, off to Berlin in the WKCR jetpacks. 
Uh, you're listening to Deep Focus. I'm Mitch Goldman. Melvin Gibbs is our guest. And here's some music from Ornette Coleman that, unless you were listening when I played this a couple of weeks ago, you've never heard live from 1978 on WKCR.
that's the stuff. That's that Ornette juice that we love that brings us back every time. Oh, man. Uh, the date, August 17th, 2015. Melvin Gibbs in the studio with me, a deep focus on the topic of Ornette Coleman. And uh, that's part two of three. I told you about uh, the fact that we're going to be back in the studio going live. Did I have you subscribed to this deep focus yet? Um, if you don't see it, we are small, media, large. That's who you'll see as the hosting company. Come on along. Get on board with that. Tell us if you like it. Tell us if you don't like it. Did I tell you about, uh, you can email us if you want. You got something to share about the show. It's deepfocusnow at gmail.com. Deepfocusnow at gmail. And uh, come on along on Instagram. We are deep underscore focus underscore deep underscore focus underscore podcast at uh, on Instagram. And we're always putting up new info and photos and cool stuff about it. So, yeah, come find us. All right. Uh, meet me over part three. I'll see you there. <laughs>